Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We're Mark and Kim. How are you today, Mark? How are you, Kim? I'm well, thank you. We uh, we have some nice weather going on, and it's a perfect time to talk about seasonal wines, and not just seasonal wines, but uh, our our one of our favorite styles right now, which is rosé. All things pink. Rosé wine. Every every week I'm seeing it's trending up, it's trending down. I don't know what's going on, Kim. <laughs> I just know I'm ordering more, and it seems like it does relate to the weather. When it's warm, people buy them. Yeah, and we see articles all the time. Like We read daily about trends in wine and topics and, and new numbers that are coming out. And it's, it's funny to see one article that says, oh, rosé sales growth is up 40%, yada, yada, yada. And then another one saying, oh, but wine trend drink to drinking is down and it's funny to see different um, different outlets having sort of different information but from our own experience and from talking to people and talking to consumers rosé definitely still seems to be the hot ticket out there well it seems like it's popular because a lot of the cider and the liquor companies are making rosé themed drinks now so right it, that's how we sort of know that the, that a topic is still really hot is when others are still jumping on the bandwagon so one that we definitely have seen this season is rosé cider. Yeah, rosé ciders are very hot right now. And when one brand comes out, there's three out the next week. Mm -hmm. So the next thing they moved into was spirits or liquor. So there's some rosé vodkas out there now. Oh, I haven't seen those. So it's trending up this week or now. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, we talk about trends, we have to also talk about demographics and who are the people that this is trying to appeal to and what age group, what gender group, what category and, and all of this. So this uh, this whole trend of pink does seem to be stemming from a lot of millennial consumption. So those folks in their 20s, maybe early 30s, there's even a term, quote unquote, millennial pink, which color schemes that are trending right now. And a lot of it has to do with rosé wine. And it seems to be putting out there this idea of youth and luxury. And I think there still are a lot of companies that are jumping on this uh, this pink bandwagon. I would say this is popular because USA Today is writing this article. So if they're picking it up, there must be something going on. Right. right? And not just regionally for us. If it's USA Today, then it's it's across the country. So it, it's not just for our local economy, but this is, this is definitely something that is countrywide. So the millennial pink that you were saying came as a color that's sort of like a Tiffany blue that was mm. developed because of people liking rosé. Right. So that led to clothing colors and houseware items being this color of rosé. Right. And uh, and purples are very big right now. So we're seeing, we're definitely seeing this this trend to these sort of softer colors. So I saw a stat, Kim, you know, I, I love my numbers. So they said rosé is only 1.5% of the table wine category, but in the last 12 months, it's up 40%. That seems to be pretty uh, pretty healthy sales growth. That's huge. Either that or never sold and it jumped right up, right? So <laughs> Well, we know that it didn't never sold. So, well, maybe know, the been... trend was low mm -hmm. and now it's spiked. So that, that would make sense of why we see this all the time. It's low, it's high. Yeah. 
What, I, what about this other item they talked about, Kim, the frozen rosé? Have you ever <laughs> tried this? I haven't. And I remember seeing this for the first time. I think it was last summer. So this is still a relatively, I think, new fashion thing. Sort of rosé, wine, not smoothies, but slushies. And they call them frosés. <laughs> and yeah. I haven't had one, but maybe I should make one at home. But it definitely sounds like something that uh, would appeal to, I don't want to say just younger people, but if you're looking to get some fun out of your wine and not take it quite so seriously, then this would be uh, an interesting way to go. So the process for making it, Kim, was interesting to me because it says take a 750 milliliter uh, wine bottle of of rosé, which is 25 ounces. You put it in a pan and you put it in the freezer. Mm -hmm. So it becomes slushy, right? Right. You're freezing out the water. Then you, on the side, you have a mixture of sugar, strawberries, and lemon juice. You kind of mix that concoction together. Then you take the frozen wine out and you blend it. So it's a slushy. It's a slushy. You could also do it in ice cube trays, which you, I can imagine would probably be a little bit easier than freezing it in a big pan, too. When you're freezing it now, and is the alcohol going away? No, the alcohol is staying there. And because alcohol has a much lower freezing point than water does, this doesn't get like rock hard, solid, frozen. It's still a little mushy. So it's something that if you want it as your frozen treat, you do need to drink it pretty quickly. So if I want to, instead of a, this frozen thing, if I want to make it into like a jello shot... Ooh. What do you think? I think I've that's totally I've heard of rosé gummy bears, right? They didn't mention that in this Oh, article. and those are delicious. I how did, have to how did say, you find those? I had a friend give me a little package of them because she doesn't drink wine. And are, so she didn't want to eat the gummy bears. And they were really, really good. Are they American company that's doing that candy? Mm, the ones no. that I had were German. See, they didn't talk about that, but that's another big trend in the rosé thing, the gummy bears. Yeah. And not just wine. I've seen beer flavored gummy bears too. I think they were Corona gummy bears. Yes, I saw that. Did you see those? Cinco de Mayo time. <laughs> so it did say that rosé is leading to other food trends. So the gummy bears is one of them. I think the other thing I see a lot that's popular with rosé is people using social media to say, I'm drinking rosé mm-hmm. or I bought a rosé. And there's something really nice about the differences in the colors of rosé. And I think it does lend itself very well to a platform like Instagram, where it's all visual. You can mess with the colors a little bit, up the brightness and up the, you know, the pinks and things like that. So we really do see some quite stunning images of of different glasses of rosé that are all different colors and the way that it sparkles in the light and all that good stuff. So I definitely see the appeal of of the rosé wine from a visual standpoint. Is that color millennial pink? Is that a Pantone official thing? I, it might be. No. I don't know. Did you just see? I mean, they just had champagne was officially made into a, a color. Oh, I don't so, think the champenoise are going to be very happy about that. Well, we should we should look into this. I think we should uh, definitely find the pink color from millennial pink. I'm going to go look for that. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to get more information about this show, please follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Now we're going to explore the topic of private label wines. This was a blog, The Gray Report, which is an excellent blog, uh, 
talking about basically bulk wines that are made into private labels for either restaurants or stores. So what is a private label? You can approach any winery or winemaking company and say, I want to have my own label that's exclusive to myself, my store or my restaurant that no one else can sell or buy. And basically you can name whatever you want. Are you familiar with a lot of these, Kim? I Sure, I am. And a lot of it has to do with like wine clubs. So say a newspaper wants to have a wine club and they want to have wines that are exclusive to themselves. You can't go to a store and buy them. And they want to... I think develop this air of exclusivity and that these are hard wines to find, you're getting a good deal, you're getting a value. And really what this blog was exploring was, are these in fact a good value for you? And it's back to that topic that we've touched on a number of times about wines that have interesting character, are from specific places, are transparent in that you know who made them, what the story behind the winery is, that they they really have a, a sense of place? Or on the other side, is it just bulk wine with clever marketing that makes you want to think that it is exclusive and it is um, higher quality than maybe you'd find anywhere else? So I think that that's the, the gist of this article. So let's give some examples of where our listeners have probably seen these private labels. Trader Joe's Tubac Chuck is a label that is made just for Trader Joe's. Costco's has a brand called Kirkland, which is exclusive to them. Target has a brand called Roots. I've never seen this one, but I guess it's pretty big. Uh, Whole Foods has a brand called Wine Farmer. And an interesting thing about retail, Total Wine sells about 2,000 wines that are private label exclusively. Hmm. So that's, that's a lot of that's wine. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of brands to have on your shelf that's just for you to sell. And a lot of restaurants will do this as well. And it's not necessarily that the restaurant is going to the winery and saying, hey, we want a wine that's going to be just for us. Usually what happens is a particular whole wholesaler will have winery relationships and contacts and they come to an agreement that, okay, we have this wine brand, pretty inexpensive, and what we are going to do is put it aside and just sell it to restaurants so that they have an inexpensive buy the glass pour so that maybe they're only spending, I don't know, $4 for that bottle of wine and then they can use that on a daily basis as sort of their house wine so they don't have to put a whole lot of effort into continually changing up their buy the glass and they have this one go-to that their patrons, I guess, can rely on all the time. Yeah, the, the restaurant private label, a second label, very common. People will ask, had this Chardonnay at the restaurant. Most of the time, it is a second label. So it is the same product that they're just putting a different label. So the restaurants can charge a little different price and you cannot find them in the store to feel, I guess, you're getting ripped off in a right. restaurant. Right. But there usually is something behind it where you can match it up pretty easy. The... Uh, one of the takeaways from this article really was that are these wines a good value for the consumer or is it that they are just sort of trying to take advantage of you not knowing where to look on the label to be able to tell is this something that is just inexpensive wine that is being bottled in an expensive package and trying to get you to trick to trick you to think that this is something that's a higher quality. He is saying that usually these wines just have clever marketing, kind of boring and sort of fall into this category of in authentic because they're big commercial very large production and it's building a brand that is really based only on price and doesn't have any of this unique character but I, th I think it depends on what purpose is the wine serving I think if you're just 
trying to use it as a, a label that is a house label. I think that it, it serves a good purpose. My issue with them are when it's something like those wine clubs where it's $2 juice and they're selling to you for $25 and trying to get you to believe that this is a better quality product than it actually is. That what I think is a little bit sketchy for me. Yeah. And based on that, if you do get those wine club wines, you can't find them anywhere else. So you can't really compare if you're paying too much or, or not enough right it's always from them and not only can you not find them anywhere else but if you try to look up information online about them you're not going to find any information and and i've tried this before and that makes me wary of the wine it's like if i don't know who's making it and where it's coming from even if i know that it's a big producer and i look online and i find that out like i'm still cool with that because at least i've at least now i know that it's when there's no information about the wine at all out there that i'm a little bit like what is this. And I like the authentic comment he made in here because if you are buying a private label wine or store or restaurant is doing this, they're obviously doing it to make money, right, Kim? I mean, it's a moneymaker for them. So you have to decide as a consumer, is it a value to you? Uh, Do you mind that they're probably making two times more than they're making on a national brand or or another small winery's wine? I think that's key. As a consumer, you have to decide that. Also mentioned in here was comparing private label wines to what's called bulk wines. So is it any different than the big wine companies that are making bulk wine or box wine or jug wine? Right. You know that Yellowtail makes millions and millions and millions of bottles. And I think that most people who drink Yellowtail, even if they aren't aware of that, they just know that it's always available. It's always the same. It's comfortable for them to drink because they know it. And it's just the idea of something else that is on the same level as Yellowtail being put out there as something else. One of the funny things I also thought in this, Kim, was how they saying most of the private label statistics are not reported. Like they showed Costco sells $270 million of their own private label every year. But most of the other people that have private labels don't report how much they're selling. So you can't really say how much of the wine industry is based on private labels, but it's huge. Right. I mean, it's, it's a big, big thing for the major brands. So why is that information not not out there? I I think it's just like anything, like my retail store, I don't, I don't report how much yellowtail I'm selling every every year. I kind of compare it to that. Uh But I think for consumers, if you go into a store or or a restaurant and the first thing they ask you is profile, maybe what you like. And the first thing they push to you is a brand you never heard of. I mean, ask them, is this exclusive to you or is this a private label? Most of the time that is a sales pitch that you have to be careful of. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about me at vinitaswineworks.com and about Mark at franklinliquors.com. So we're going to get a little wine geeky on you here and talk about some interesting winemaking techniques that some newer wines are now starting to use. And this is an article in Vine Pair, which is one of our favorite places to go for trends in the wine world. And it was talking about the shift away from using oak barrels 
barrels into using concrete tanks, which is at the same time very old school and also really modern and new for a lot of winemakers. Yes, so winemakers can ferment or age wines in oak, stainless steel, but concrete has been trending very popular. There's all different shapes and sizes you're seeing around. And really, this goes back to old school winemaking, right, Kim? Really old school, like thousands of years ago. And there are winemakers that do make very traditional, kind of funky styles of wine out in Eastern Europe that have been using this uh, style of aging their wines for quite a while now. And it's, um, it's interesting to me because it, in my opinion, combines the best qualities of stainless steel and also the best qualities of oak. So one of the benefits of making your wine in great big stainless steel tanks is that it's very neutral in flavor. You're not having a wine that is absorbing any extra flavors from the vessel. So when you age in oak, you get a lot of the oaky flavors into the wines. When you age in stainless steel, you don't get any of that. And they can be temperature controlled and you can get not have any oxygen in there. It's a very, very clean, sterile environment for making wine. But wine, when it is being made and when it's being aged, actually benefits from having a little bit of oxygen exposure. So that's one of the benefits of using oak is because, yes, you do get those flavors, but you also get very tiny amounts of oxygen having an impact on the wine. And concrete allows that little bit of oxygen exposure into the wine while keeping it neutral in flavor. So I think that's pretty cool. The oak trend for me is always confusing because there was a big movement at one time, no oak. So they were coming out with unoaked wines, uh, naked wines, light oaked wines, tree-free wines. And it seemed like the palate of the wine consumer was going to wanting more fruit. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that's why this type of concrete vessel, it was more popular with winemakers because the style changed. Right. But now we're also seeing like this big trend in bourbon barrel aged wines. So there is still this segment of the population that really, really likes these big oaky wines, you know, that that sweet kind of smell and taste and lots of vanilla and lots of lots of just other stuff going on. So it is interesting to see what consumers are looking for, but then the different things that winemakers are doing and do those things match up, which is always something to keep an eye on. So technically they're saying the concrete vessel is more porous, so it allows the grape that goes within it to be a true varietal character of right. the grape. Right. And then the resulting wine ends up, especially for whites, being kind of brighter and more minerally and more fruity, which from other trends and things that we've been watching in the wine world seems to be a direction that some wine drinkers are going, that higher acid, leaner wines had a place and now consumers are looking for things that might not be oaky, but are still a little more fruity. So it'll be really interesting to see if wines made in this style and in concrete really do take off. And that you were talking about temperature control, Kim. They're saying the concrete is a perfect insulator. Mm-hmm. They can also put cooling methods within the concrete to maintain the temperature a lot better than other vessels. And then a lot of those old school wine producers will actually bury them in the ground. So they'll have the natural coolness of the earth to keep them temperature controlled as well, which is totally geeky. There was a big trend recently about concrete vessels that are shaped like eggs. They call them the concrete mm-hmm. egg. And I was looking at a website, Sonoma Cast Store. If you want to see what these things look like, you have to go to this site. There's so many different styles and sizes. And a lot of these winemakers are just going crazy with colors, you know, green. <laughs> and just it's amazing what the technology is going to. 
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we want to talk about wine bottles. This was an article in Wine Enthusiast. What does your wine bottle really say about the wine, the shape and the color, Kim? This is a pretty interesting topic. I think this is such a cool topic because whenever I bring this up to to wine drinkers who don't have a whole lot of experience with wine classes and, and all the stuff that we've gone through, it completely blows people away. Like the idea that the shape of the bottle that your wine is in actually has a reason <laughs> is like something that is completely foreign to most people. Most of what you see on a wine shelf, the shape of the bottle has nothing to do with making the wine taste a certain way. It's really all based on tradition. And what is the grape variety in that bottle? And how is that grape variety traditionally bottled? So it's a pretty cool topic. It's a good history thing about wine. It's a great history lesson. And there's basically three, right, Kim? There's the Bordeaux, there's the Burgundy, and there's the Flute. Right. So historically, certain regions, and especially of France, and therefore, certain grape varieties were bottled in specific shape bottles. So Bordeaux has a tall-ish bottle that has what we call shoulders. So it kind of goes out to the side and then straight down. Whereas Burgundy bottles, they slope and it's a, a gradual down to a bit of a fatter bottle. And then there are the Germanic style of bottles, which is called a flute So the same word as what you drink your champagne out of. And those are the really tall ones that everybody associates with Riesling. This is great for consumers because you see a Bordeaux bottle and Bordeaux makes Cab, makes Merlot. So typically you're seeing all the Cab and all the Merlot in a Bordeaux style bottle. So I think it's a mind control thing. You you just automatically expect to see it in that bottle. So Mm -hmm. if you see a Cab in a flute bottle, you're like, what's going on with this, right? You never see red wines in flutes. Never. There's nothing wrong with putting it in there. But just historically and traditionally, nobody's ever done it, so nobody's doing it. But it's a, it really is a great way for producers to communicate to a consumer the style of the wine in almost a way that the consumer doesn't even realize it's happening. So it's it's almost this shorthand of if you see white wine in a burgundy bottle, chances are that's a Chardonnay or a bigger, heavier white style, like something from the Rhone Valley. So you've got Viognier's tend to be bottled in those shapes, other unusual white that are a little bit richer. So interesting shorthand that I don't even think consumers consciously know about, but you will almost always see Merlots and Cabernets bottled in the same shape of a bottle. And and it's it's pretty cool. So we're hoping you have that visual now in your mind. Bordeaux, typically a Cab. We're talking the 750 milliliter size bottles too. So Cab Merlot is a Bordeaux style bottle. As Kim was saying, Chardonnay, Burgundy style bottle, and Pinot Noir, obviously, for, for the Burgundy bottle. And the flute, you're seeing Riesling, you're seeing uh, Moscato's, Gewurztraminer's, Pinot Gris. A lot of the packaging or bottling is based on the bottling line. So to go out of the norm of these bottles is is not is not typical right. and it's costly. So if you see some different shapes or weird packaging, they're paying more because the bottling line is costing them more. And a lot of producers will diverge from the tradition and do something different in order to make a statement. So if they're producing a limited quantity of a higher end wine, then they want to do something special with that packaging. And this does come back, to, you know, comes back to marketing. It comes back to trying to get the consumer to understand without saying so many words that this is a more special, a more exclusive 
kind of a wine. So you might see a winery's top tier wine in a heavier glass bottle or a darker bottle, or maybe there's a stamp on the bottle or there's some sort of embossed engraving or something on that bottle. So they are making a statement by having that bottle stand out from all the other ones that are out there. So there are some other unusual shaped bottles, but usually you'll see them for things that sort of break the norm. And there are some Bordeaux-style bottles that are a little narrower in width, but the shape is is typically the same shape. Mm-hmm. And those bottles bug me because they just fall through the wine racks because they're just yeah. a hair off, too thin. So next, let's talk about the color, Kim. Sure. Um, basically, we're seeing clear bottles. We're seeing green bottles. We see blue bottles. We see brown bottles. Right. So green, green glass is usually what you'll see most of. You will see brown as well. And the green is usually sufficient to protect the wine, especially red wines, from UV radiation. So that's one of the main reasons why you would want a colored bottle is if you are going to hold on to that wine for a little bit of time and you want to make sure that it is protected from sunlight. Now, you might go the opposite direction and most, say, producers of rosé will put their wines in clear glass. So not only is that wine not meant for aging, but it's very important for the consumer to see the color of that wine because, you know, you've got these really beautiful shades of pink and you're trying to get something across by what the color of the wine is. So it makes a whole lot of sense to put that wine in clear glass so that the consumer immediately is drawn to that color. The brown glass thing mentioned this article was, was interesting because they're saying most beer is in brown glass, but the wine doesn't need that amount of UV protection. So they, they use the green. Right. And especially so, red wines. Red wines are much more stable than, than beer or than white wine. In the past, I did hear an interesting story from a winemaker where they were using a green colored bottle for a white wine mm. and they switched to a clear colored bottle and their sales doubled. Yeah. Because they people are now seeing the fresh, clear wine. I thought that was interesting color, how it affected the sale of a wine. I've always thought it's strange when I see white wines that are bottled in almost like a yellowish or have kind of a slightly orange tinge to the glass because it always makes the wines look like they're slightly oxidized. And even if they haven't gotten too old, I'm always a little wary of those wines because you can't really tell what the color of of it is. They always look a little off to me. Yeah, you think they purposely are doing that? I don't know, but it it does, does make me hesitate. So let's talk about the the actual heavy or the weight of a, of a glass bottle. Kim, this happens to me a lot. When I'm buying a wine from a wholesale, I pick it up and I, f- I kind of feel the, it's geeky, but if I'm paying 40 bucks for a bottle and it's a thin Bordeaux bottle and it has no weight to it and they bring me a nice thick glass bottle, I just feel that the, the wine should taste better. They're, taste, they're playing mind games with yeah. you. They're, this is all that marketing thing. You know, you associate a heavier bottle with a higher quality wine and vice versa. If you you get a, a lighter bottle, you think, oh, it's a cheap bottle. Therefore, the wine inside must not be as good as something else. So yeah, I think they're, they're totally messing with you. So when we're talking weight here, you it's almost like it's a champagne, a thick, thick glass mm-hmm. bottle compared to the thin style glass. Right. And champagne, by the way, does need to have that thicker glass. That they're not doing it to, to pull any wool over your eyes because the carbonation in that bottle 
creates a high pressure uh, inside that bottle. You need it to be thicker or otherwise those bottles are going to explode. Let's talk about the bottom of the bottle. And this is always a, I find it a trivia question a lot and people never ask about it, but there is a term for what that is under there. It's called a punt. A I P-U-N-T. do get this question you every do. once in a while. Yeah, I, I had it a couple of weeks ago. I had somebody ask me what the whole point of that was or what it was called. Well, that's a good good consumer right yeah, there. No, it was someone who was thinking. So to me, you, you pick it up and the bottom is either flat or it has this indentation, which in the past was made for sediment to kind of go into that area. But now they're saying because wines are, are consumed quick, they don't really need this. So right. what are your thoughts on it? Ken? I I don't really see the point in it anymore. I mean, if it's a really deep one, you know, you can kind of use it to pour if you're trying to be all fancy schmancy. But I, I really don't see that it necessarily does anything for the wine other than make it have this air of higher quality because it's got this really deep punt in the bottom of, of the bottle. Like they mentioned in this article, it's like a lot of most Rieslings and most flute bottles don't have this. Salad dressing bottles don't, have, don't right. have it. Soda bottles don't have it. So why does wine have it? I think it's just a holdover. I can see that for white wines, it shouldn't have any sediment, so it shouldn't need that. But when a red wine, if it is just flat, I, I have a hard time adjusting mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. If there's a practical purpose, if it is a wine that is going to throw some sediment and you need that down at the bottom there to kind of collect it, then I can I can see the point of it. Some producers are funny because the bottom, you can put your whole fist in the yeah. thing. It's so huge. And then others, there's nothing there at all. I, one of the th- things I kind of opened my eyes on on glass was there was, a, was an industry magazine that would tell you a brand and it would say who they get their corks from, who they get their bottles from, how they're sealing the wines, how they're fermenting their wines. But one of the high end Napa wines they featured, they were using glass bottles from China and it cost them, I think, five cents for the glass bottle, but the bottle retailed for $120 on the shelf. Wow. So my, my mind was blown that why would you put your $100 wine in a five cent bottle? Why not use better glass? So I thought it was interesting. Maybe it was still a good bottle and they were just getting it for cheap. And the other thing with glass and bottles is if you ever notice some cases come in a clear white box, that's typically the box that the empty bottles are coming in and they just turn them around and put it <laughs> back in when they very fill interesting. it. So there's a lot of things like that with the in the wine world that I find very interesting. Yeah. You're, you're probably thinking they're geeky. That's interesting to me too and, and you know just at it's nice to get the idea across to people that sometimes things having to do with wine aren't really based on anything logical, but that on all of this history and tradition that are behind them, because it's a product that's been made for thousands of years by people. And, and sometimes that little bit of history does still play out in modern times. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Feel free to leave us questions or comments, and we will talk to you again later.